Well, let me start out with this. Have you ever wanted to sue someone into oblivion? All right, or would you actually admit to that? You know, would you would you ever ever want to take somebody to court? Well, I found the top ten outrageous legal battles. Now I can't go over all of them, but uh, number one was a class action suit. Uh, like many recent college graduates, twenty-seven-year-old Trina Thompson has struggled to land a job since getting her diploma in April two thousand nine. But instead of blaming the recession for her employment woes, the New York City native filed a lawsuit against her alma mater, Monroe College in Bronx, New York, to recoup the seventy thousand she spent on a bachelor's degree in information technology, saying that the school's Office of Career and Advancement has failed miserably at helping her advance her career. Now, you know, I think you're going to get this more and more with the higher cost of college. You know, hey, but uh, that's that's a uh, outrageous, frivolous lawsuit. Of course, uh, coming in at number two, one that we have all heard about. Uh, do you know the name Stella Liebeck, who was then 79 years old, was the passenger in the passenger seat of her parked car when she spilled a scalding 49-cent cup of... McDonald's coffee on her lap, causing third-degree burns that required skin grafts, two years of treatment. And after attempting to settle with McDonald's for $20,000, which really not that outrageous, enough, she said, to cover her medical costs, Liebeck brought back the case to court uh, when the fast food giant countered offered with a paltry $800. Well, Anyway, let's see. Although the jury awarded Liebeck 160,000 in compensatory damages and 2.7 million in punitive damages, McDonald's and Liebeck reached an undisclosed out-of-court settlement to preclude the possibility of appeals. Man, that's some major money. And I always think of this lady whenever I get a coffee cup because now printed on your coffee cup is what? You know, be careful. This could, you know, this is hot. And then this is one for you since it's uh, March Madness. Uh, one, uh, one of them is, uh, aren't you the guy from Space Jam? Apparently, uh, not everyone wants to be like Mike. In 2006, Alan Heckard of Portland, Oregon, sued Michael Jordan for $416 million on the grounds that his resemblance to the Hoops legend caused emotional pain and suffering, defamation, and permanent injury. This guy said, I couldn't go anywhere without being mistaken for this guy. In fact, even when I played basketball, people thought I was him. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes you wonder now, what's the problem with that, you know? Of course, someone said maybe it was Heckard's shaved head, earring, and Air Jordan sneakers had something to do with it. Anyway, outrageous lawsuits. Well, let me ask you this. Maybe you or I have wanted to take someone to court to get back what is ours, or at least to clear our name. Wouldn't it be nice if, when you're wrongly accused, if you could just immediately take that person to court and get your name cleared. But here's the thing that we want to look at in Job chapter 8. What if the person that you think has done you wrong is both the ju- is also the judge that you have to go before? And what if that person is God? What if the person that you want to take to court, the person that you need to clear your name with, is also God Almighty? Well, that's what we see in Job chapter 8. Now, how easy do you think it is to take God to court? Wouldn't be too easy. Do you think Perry Mason, I'm a big Perry Mason fan, 
and uh, got my daughter to start watching him. So we go to CBS. You can go online, watch it for free. And uh, in fact, you can see them all in order. It's an amazing thing. We're working our way through that. Uh, maybe you're, how many people are Matlock? We're Matlock fans, you know. These are cases that even these guys couldn't win. Job sitting on the ash heap of despair. He's ready to take God to court, but he admits that it won't be easy. After all, how do you serve God with papers, right? You ever thought about that? In fact, there's a movie entitled The Man Who Sued God, uh, starring comedian Billy Conley. But sometimes truth is stranger than fiction because there was a senator from Nebraska who tried to sue God. His name was Aaron Chambers. And on September 14, 2007, Ernie Chambers uh, filed a lawsuit against God seeking permanent injunction ordering God to cease certain harmful activities and the making of terroristic threats of grave harm to innumerable persons, including constituents of the plaintiff who plaintiff has the duty to represent. In fact, Chambers went so far in his lawsuit as to say that God has made terrorist threats against the senator and his constituents, inspired fear, and caused, quote, widespread death, destruction, and terrorization of millions upon millions of the earth's inhabitants. Now, likewise, the suit accuses God of having his chroniclers quote, disseminate in written form said admissions throughout the earth in order to inspire fear, dread, anxiety, terror, and uncertainty in order to coerce obedience to the defendant's will. The senator also wants the court to issue a permanent injunction prohibiting God from issuing plagues and terrorist threats. It's unclear how this would work since God is usually understood to be all-powerful. Chambers does admit that God's omnipresent, everywhere present, and omniscient knows all the things. However, since God is everywhere, the Nebraska court has jurisdiction, Chambers argues. And since God is all-knowing, Chambers doesn't have to serve him with a notice of the lawsuit. The lawsuit indicates that Chambers attempted to make God appear in order to serve him by saying, quote, come out, come out, wherever you are. But the Almighty declined, like many defendants, to make it easy for a plaintiff to serve him with court papers. The reporter ends his article with these words, Attempts to reach chambers for comment were unsuccessful, and God did not immediately respond to a non-denominational prayer for comment by this reporter. Okay, now... This, that's real world stuff, okay? I mean, what a great, I mean, wouldn't you be proud if you were a Nebraskan? That's my senator spending time doing that. But here's the truth of the matter. There's a lot of truth in what that guy filed, that sometimes life gets so hard and sometimes life seems so unfair that we would like to take God to court. We would like to have an opportunity to go face to face and confront him and say, God, why is this happening? I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's right. Well, that's where Job is at in chapters 8 through 10. Last week we heard from Eliphaz, the experienced moralist. Eliphaz tried to comfort Job with his vast experience saying, Hey, I've seen it. I've experienced it. My experiences in life and suffering are much more important than yours. So you need to just sit down and listen to me. He was a moralist that said, Look, you'll reap what you sow. Before you die, 
So if you'll just make it right now, God will make it right with you. But as one student observed, he wound up talking a lot, said little, and comforted not at all. In a sense, Eliphaz offered no help advice. And then we saw that Job responded to him by saying this, Here's what to do when life's hard and people aren't helping and God's not home. Well, now the second guy in this tag team of miserable comforters has stepped up, and his name is Bildad, and we see him in verse 1. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad, the Shuite, answered. Now, Shuite means he came from a line of a man by the name of Shua, but we're going to call Bildad, Bildad the Brutal, the Brutal Traditionalist, because that fits his attitude and the authority on which he based his comfort for Job. So, notice his brutal bedside manner in verse 2. He says in verse 2, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Now, that's, that's pretty brutal. You know, here's Job just laid his heart out. He has this cry of despair, and he says, Job, you old windbag, you're full of a lot of hot air. Yes, you say your words are just empty words of someone in despair, because Job really said that. In chapter 6, verse 26, we, we hear Job say this, Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? He says, look, don't, don't pay attention to what I'm saying. I'm in, I'm in depression. I'm in despair. I'm in suffering. I'm just, uh, my, wor- my words are just a lot of hot air, just a lot of wind. But here's what, this is what Bildad's saying in verse 2. Your words may be hot air, but they're like a raging storm. And the words that he used, he says, look, Bildad, or I'm, I'm sorry, look, Job, what you're saying isn't easily dismissed because what you're saying is destructive, raging, noisy, and dangerous, like a blowing, violent blowing storm. And if people listen to what you're saying, they'll be swept away into your false thinking and your false view of God. Your words may be hot air, but they're dangerous and they're destructive because they attack the justice of God. How do I know that? Look at verses 3 and 4. Look at verses 3 and 4. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? See, what Bildad heard Job saying was, God's not being fair to me, God's not being just, and he says, that's a dangerous thing to say about God. Now, notice what it says in verse 4. If you want to see how brutal he gets, look at verse 4. If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. He's like, whoa, that's pretty brutal. This guy just lost ten kids, seven sons. And he says, you know why your sons died? I'll tell you why they died. Because they're sinners. God's just. He killed them. That's pretty brutal, right? Well, where's his authority? What's he basing this on? Drop down to verses 8, 9, and 10. Here's Bildad's authority for such brutal statements. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday and we know nothing this present generation because our days on earth are as a shadow. 
Will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? I hope that these few verses I've read show you that Bildad is a brutal traditionalist in how he's trying to comfort Job. So you have there in your notes, I've got an overview of these three chapters we're going to look at. Chapter 8, you see the miserable comfort of Bildad, the brutal traditionalist. We're going to learn how not to help a hurting friend. Uh, and the way you don't help a hurting friend is you don't give him a brutal beating with the rod of prosperity theology. And then in verses uh, chapters 9 and 10, Job's going to respond by taking God Almighty to court and finding out it won't be easy. It's a case that even Perry Mason could not win. So that's kind of the overview of these chapters. So let's dive in and let's begin getting a brutal beating with the rod of prosperity theology. Why? Because Bildad's more bold, more blunt, and more brutal than Eliphaz was last week. And we're going to summarize his miserable comfort in four whacks. Okay? So you got to think of being whacked on the side of the head. Bildad's brutal, right? So, boom. Or you could think of these as body blows below the belt. Okay? So each point's going to be boom, 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 boom. Okay? That's, that's, how he, that's how he's comforting. That's how he's advising. So these are four whacks. Basically, he's trying to beat Job into a blessing. You ever had that happen to you? Yeah. Somebody come along here. Let me bless you a little bit. Boom, 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 boom. Feel blessed yet? No, not. Oh, oh, oh. That's what Bill Dad's doing, okay? And let's be honest. Look at your neighbor and say, you know, I've done that. I've done that. I've not only experienced it, I've been the beater, okay? Let me beat you into a blessing. And if you're a parent, there's no way you can deny you haven't done this. Is that right? Polo table over there, generations over there. All right, let's go. Let's look at whack number one. It's an uppercut. Look up, Job. God is not just. Boom. God is not just in verses 3 through 7. First, we see a brutal accusation. It's in verse 3. I read it. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? Basically, Bildad's saying, your cry of despair is a destructive attack on the very character of God. Do you really think God Almighty perverts justice like you do by claiming to suffer for no good reason? He's saying, look, Job, as long as you say you're innocent and are suffering for not, for, for, and you're not suffering due to sin, then you're saying God is unjust. That's very blunt, very bold, but it gets more brutal. His, expl his brutal explanation is in verse 4, and I've already read it. If your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. Could anything be more brutal than that statement to a man who just lost his entire family? He has lost everything he owns, and his wife has come up to him and said, Curse God and die. And Bildad says, I'm here to comfort you. Your sons died because they're sinners. And you're suffering because you're one too. Then we see his brutal solution in verses 5 through 7. Now, let me give you the solution here, Job. Verse 5, if you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now He would rouse Himself for you and restore your righteous estate, though your beginning was insignificant. Yet your end will increase greatly. That's pure and simple, the rod of prosperity theology, whacking Job 
on the side of the head. Let me make a couple observations of 5, 6, and 7. These are crucial verses. Let me make a couple observations. First of all, look at that word compassion in verse 5. Uh, the compassion here is the Old Testament word for grace. Uh, these guys aren't necessarily saying the wrong thing. They're saying the right thing in the wrong way. He says, look, if you would seek God and implore the grace of the Almighty, call on His grace, call on His compassion. The problem is he links that compassion, that grace, to conditions. Notice the conditions. If you would do this, if you were this way, surely then... God would act. So he's saying, seek God's grace. The problem is, you can earn it. If you will just do this, then God's grace will kick in. Well then, if I can do this and God's grace will kick in, then it's no longer grace. Are you with me? It's something that God now owes me. So it's a twisting of God's grace. Now let me show you how this works. He says, look, if you would seek God, in other words, if you would repent, confess your sin, and if you would then make things right with him by, by repenting of your sin, then God would rouse himself for you. What that mean? He would take away your adversity. He would come through and heal you. Then he says, and restore you to your righteous estate. Now he'll give you, pro- he'll take away your adversity. He'll give you prosperity. But then look at the last part. And though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Wow. Job, what was Job before this? Job was the richest man on the planet, or in the east. He was the richest man in the east. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, if you'll just get right with God, if you'll just confess that sin that I know you got, and that you're denying, if you'll just do that and seek God's grace, boom! You will not only not suffer anymore, You will not only be blessed, but you'll be richer than you were, healthier than you were, and happier than you were. Sound familiar? You can have your best life now. You just need to get right with God. You're the one holding up God's grace. Wow. Kind of brutal to say that to a guy who's the most godliest man on the planet and is in the depths of suffering. He didn't need to hear that. Well, look at the consequences of Bildad's prosperity theology. Ironically, he predicted, without knowing it, what's going to happen at the end of the the book. Do you realize at the end of the book, God is going to make Job twice as rich as what he was, but not because of anything Job did, just purely because of God's grace? You see, what's wrong is not so much... Bildad understands that God is gracious. He's compassionate. He's forgiving. It's really some beautiful theology here. If you'll just ask Him to forgive you, He'll do it on the basis of His grace. That's true. But what God doesn't promise is in forgiving us that He'll materially bless us with a carefree, non-suffering life. Are you with me? You see, Joe or Bildad saw God like a divine candy machine that guarantees you get a certain return on what you put in. Now, where I take my car, uh, Croy's uh, Car Care Center, uh, they have a candy machine that has hot tamales in it. I like hot tamales. You like hot tamales? Hot tamales are great. 
And so rather than buying a big box, when I'm in there, if I have a quarter, I'll put a quarter in, get me a handful of hot tamales to kind of make me feel a little better about spending money on fixing my car. And so we've been in there a lot lately, unfortunately. And uh, I was in there the other day picking up the car after having paid the, the piper. And uh, I thought, I need to feel a little better. And I put my quarter in, and I twisted it, and out came three. Now... <laughs> I had just been there a week earlier and had gotten the proper handful that I deserve, right? And that I had paid for. And so I got three and it was just, it was, I thought about this this morning. It was just like Job's cry of despair. I wasn't talking to God. I wasn't praying about it. And I wasn't really talking to, to the Croy people. I just cried out, three? I only got three? And the owner's son happened to be walking by when I said it. And he said, oh, wait a minute, let me take care of that. And he went behind the counter and got a quarter, put it in. I cranked it, and I got my appropriate. Uh, in fact, I think I got the ones I shouldn't have gotten plus what I got. And, and then I was happy. And uh, isn't that kind of how we are? You see, here, God, I've read your word. I'm going to church, and here's what I expect now. On the basis of your grace, I expect this, and I don't get it. And when I don't get it, I go, three? Really? And, and I'm not really praying to you, and I'm not really, I'm just, I'm, you know. You see, God is not the hot tamale machine at Croy's Car Care Center. Do you see the comparison then with Eliphaz, reap what you sow before you die theology from last week? Do you see the comparison that everyone, uh, that everyone is a, uh, that, I'm sorry, that everyone reaps what they sow before they die. And, and, and that's what Bill Dad's saying. Hey, if you'll just get right with God, you'll reap it. You'll reap good things before you die. And that everyone is sinful. Now, last week, Eliphaz said, Job, you're a slight sinner. Because after all, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. You can't say that you're not a sinner. You're a slight sinner. Bill Dad says, no, you're not a slight sinner, Job. In light of what you've been saying, you're a serious sinner. And because you're a serious sinner, that's why you're suffering this. Therefore, everyone suffers for their sin. All right. Now, what did he base this on? Well, let me give you another whack. Whack number two, look back. Tradition is wise. Job, if you doubt what I'm saying, let me give you another hit on the head and turn your direction back and tell you that tradition is wise. His brutal confrontation is based on human traditions. I think I have it summarized for you. Job, you think you're so wise? If you would just listen to the wisdom of past generations, you would understand that what I'm saying is rooted in years of time-tested teaching by men much wiser than you and me. And in a sense, you know, Bildad is right. There's a lot of time-tested teaching that's now recorded by God in His Word that backs up what He's saying about God's grace is given to people in hard times. But the problem is that people often get God's truth wrong intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, and they slightly twist it, they slightly misinterpret, and they slightly misapply it. So what do you? let me give you a little application here. Always check the teaching of men in the past and the present with the only sure authority that you have, the Bible, that I hope you have open in, in front of you right now and that you read on a weekly, daily basis. In other words, when people come and say, hey, you know, a lot of people teach this. Well, that's great. Let's see if it's taught in the Bible. 
You understand what I'm saying? Just because something has been taught in the past doesn't make it true. And let me say this. Some, just because something's new doesn't mean it's better than something old. And something old doesn't necessarily better than something new. The point is what? Is it in the Bible? Is it in the Bible? So that's what he says. Do we reap what we sow? Yeah, that's in the Bible. But do we always reap it before we die? No, that's not in the Bible. Okay. So, not content to base it on the traditions of men. Bildad gives Job another whack, another hit below the belt. And whack number three is this. Look around, Job. Creation is instructive. Creation is instructive. Look around. Wise up and look at creation. And Job gives three illustrations here. I, I, I can't go through them all, but there's some powerful illustrations. Number one, a papyrus plant that is has no root system. Uh, a papyrus needs water to thrive. Take away the water and papyrus plant dies. What's the point? Job, you were once rich, now you're poor. You know why? You have no spiritual depth. Real simple, look at the papyrus. The papyrus plant is like people who have forgotten God, just like you've forgotten God. You have no spiritual root. That's why you're suffering. Then he says, look at the spider and his web. He, he weaves this intricate web, and he thinks he's secure in it. And then a man comes along, and what do you do with your hand? Whoosh! The web is gone. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Job, you had this vast estate. You had thousands of servants. You had all these animals. You had ten kids and a loving wife, and you had your confidence in that, and God came down because of your sin, and with His mighty hand, He swept all your confidence away. Now, you know why that's brutal? Because Job wasn't trusting in those things. Job wasn't trusting in things. That's what this whole book is about. Was God was Job serving God because of what he could get from God? And, say, and, and God said, no, that's not why he's serving me. And Satan said, oh yeah, let me take it away. And let's find out. And Satan took it away. And God allowed that. And Job's not crying out because his spider web was swept away. Job is crying out because the hand that swept it away was the hand of God. And he's like, why would God do this? Why has God done this? And then the final one is a well-watered plant that had temporary prosperity, but suddenly was uprooted by God. Now, why are all these illustrations in verses 11 through 19 so brutal? Because Bildad is comparing Job to a man who has forgotten God and who is godless. And God has said, Job is the most godly man on the planet. Well, those are three pretty brutal whacks, right? Job is on the ground, he's bleeding, he's basically knocked out. But what does every bully do in the Bible, uh, every bully do in the movies when you've beaten someone up? What do they always do? They kick them, right? They, when they're all down, they look at them and they give them one good kick. You know, the guy's unconscious and you still kick him, right? So here's the fourth whack. Look within. Blamelessness is a blessing. Look within, Job. Blamelessness is a blessing. Job's like, you're talking to me about blamelessness? Verses 20 through 22. Basically, here's what Bill... Let, 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 let me read it to you. Verses 20 through 22. Let me read it to you from the NIV. Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. Therefore, since it, since it looks like he's rejected you, you're not blameless, you must be evil. 
Alright? He will f- yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, Job, your mouth, nothing coming out of your mouth but cries of despair. And if you just get right with God, he would fill your mouth with laughter. Maybe even have you bark like a dog. No, we won't go there. But, uh, you know, fill your, your mouth with the laughter of God. And then look at verse 22. Your enemies will be clothed in shame, and the tents of the wicked will be no more. Could you be more absolute about God's blessing than that? Now, what's going on here? Job's saying this. It's black and white. I can't believe you don't get it. Repent of your sin right now, and God will immediately bless your blamelessness with even greater prosperity. God will deliver you immediately. God will delight you absolutely. God will defend you completely. He will shame your enemies. You know what the irony is? At the end of the story, guess who gets shamed? These three guys. He's speaking truth, but he doesn't, he, he doesn't know what he's speaking. He thinks he's got it all figured out, and he doesn't. In other words, Job, blamelessness is a blessing. If you just get right with God, you'll have your best life now. Now, what did, where did Bildad the brutal traditionalist go wrong? He went wrong the same way Eliphaz did last week. I won't go through those. You can look at him. He made the wrong assumption that all suffering is due to sin and that he could figure it all out for Job. Like Eliphaz, he, ma- he took the wrong approach. I can fix everything in four easy steps. If, if you do this, God will do that. He took the approach that he had God in a box, and he tied it tight with his own tradition and limited wisdom. And then number three, like Eliphaz, Bildad had the wrong attitude. There is no sympathy. There is no sympathy. There is no empathy. And while Eliphaz applied truth in a rigid manner, Bildad is applying it in a ruthless manner. This is not a guy you want to come visit you in the hospital when you're sick. So, how do you respond to a brutal beating with bad theology? Let's find out. Chapters 9 and 10. Job takes up this idea of God being just, and decides, I'm going to bypass Bildad, and I'm going to take my case right to God. I'm going to take God to court. So we go into chapter 9, and in chapter 9, there's all this legal language. Let me give you at least 12 words that are legal in this. Dispute, answer, argue, judge, innocent, summoned, hearing, justice, condemn, guilty, blameless, arbitrate. Those are all judicial, legal terms. They're all filled in chapter 9. Why? Because Job is sitting on the garbage dump of despair and he's going to turn it into a courtroom and he's going to say, God, I'm taking you to court. This is unfair. And you know what? When we're suffering and we think God's not being just, what do we do? God, we, we try to take God to court. We do the same thing. So let's take a look at it. Here's what we're going to do. Well, here's what he says. Look at Job 9, verses 1 and 2. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so. How can a man be in the right before God? Now, the first thing he does is he says, You know what, Bildad, you're right. God is always just. I know God is just. But here's my problem. You're right about God, but you're wrong about me. God is just, and I'm blameless. So why am I suffering? 
You say I'm suffering because I've sinned. That's not true. And therefore, you think I'm saying God is not just. No, I agree. God's just and I'm blameless. Now, how do I prove that to God? He's up there. I'm down here. I get it. How do I do it? Well, let's look through chapters 9 and 10. We're going to move through it with five. Here's five questions that Job is asking as he thinks about taking God to court to prove that, God, I am not suffering because I'm sinful. I am right with you, but how can I convince you of that? Number one, if I could stand before God, what would I say? You ever thought about that? Sometimes we'd say, you know, I'd like to just take this up with God. You ever thought what that would be like to stand in front of God Almighty? Job thinks about it and says, you know what? I don't think that would go too well. And he's going to find out at the end of the book it doesn't go well. Be careful what you pray for. You may get it. That's what he got. So here's what he says. Look at verse 3 of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 3. If one wished to dispute with him, take him to court... He could not answer him, that is, present his evidence and present his case to him once in a thousand times. In other words, maybe one out of every thousandth type might I be able to convince God of something. Why is that? Look at verse 4. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? Here's the bottom line. I'm going, to go, I'm going to argue my case against God who is wiser than anyone and mightier than anyone. And when you come across someone who's wiser than anyone and stronger than anyone and you want to argue a case, probably what should you do? Put your hand over your mouth and not say anything. Do you realize at the end of this book that's exactly what Job when God reveals Himself in a mighty whirlwind, a tornado, and He reveals Himself in His greatness, Job says, Oops, I've been talking when I should have been listening. I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth and not say anything more. And then God says, Yes, please do that, and I will talk to you a little bit longer. Well, look at what He does. Job knows this, but he keeps talking. You ever been there? No, you should keep your mouth shut, but keep talking. No, you shouldn't complain against God, but you complain anyway. Well, Job's there. Look at what he says. Just how wise and how powerful is God? In verses 5 through 13, Job gives us a quick lesson on the sovereignty, the greatness, and the wisdom of God. And he says things like this. He controls earthquakes and the entire stability of the planet. He tells the sun when it can shine, and He tells the stars when they can come out. He's bigger than the entire universe that He alone created. And the solar system that He put in place, well, He did that like we change light bulbs. He's mightier than the chaotic oceans. He, his mighty miracles are more than we can count. His wise wonders are beyond what our intellect or imaginations can comprehend. In verse 11, he comes near to us, and we don't even see him at work around us. He can take what is rightfully his from us, and we can't make him answer for it or force him to give it back. Even demons, in verse 13, are under his sovereign power and cannot avoid his wrath. And then Job says in verse 14, besides all this, this powerful, mighty, awesome God is against me and won't even listen to me. Look at 14 through 20. How then can I answer him? 
and choose my words before him. For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. And that's true. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. He's so big and I'm so puny. How could he ever listen to me? For he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. If it's a matter of power, behold, he's the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, well, who's going to call him to court? But you see, Job's wrong about God. Even though God is that mighty, he is listening to Job. And even though God is that great, he does care about Job. And he cares about you even when he seems so distant and far away. Well, remember, despair brings distorted thinking. So even though he's thinking right about the sovereignty of God, he's missing on the compassion of God. Look at number two. Job asked this question. If I could testify to my own blamelessness, what good would it do? If I, if I could testify to my own blamelessness before God, what good would it do? Here's what he means. God Almighty is unfair in how he allows bad things to happen to good people like me. See, Job's saying, look, Bill, Dad, you tell me that blamelessness is blessed? Well, let me tell you, I know I'm blameless, and I'm not, it doesn't feel like I'm getting blessed. In fact, if this is blessing, I'd like less of it. Been there? Been there? Look at verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20. Though I'm righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I'm guiltless, he will declare me guilty anyway. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. And then here's verse 22. This is the real frustration that he has. It's all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. What good does it do to serve God if I'm going to suffer this way anyway? I might as well be ungodly and suffer. We've all thought this. We've all been there. Now, he says he's blameless, and he is, and he's not suffering for his sin. But when we get to the end of the story and God really reveals himself, you know what Job's going to say? I repent. I repent. See, Job is just giving voice to the very problems people have with God's sovereignty over all things. Why do bad things happen to good people like me? And why do good things happen to bad people like those I don't like? Well, Job's right that God is the one and only who is ultimately in control of all things, good and bad. All this is happening is because God did allow it. But he's missing the reality that we have an adversary, the devil, who is the directly responsible for his suffering and the loss that Job handled. Well, he moves on. He tries to focus. He tries to buck up. And we come to number three. If I could just name it and claim it, what would it change? I like this question. If I could name it and claim it, because see, the prosperity theology people, the feel-good people, they want to come to you in the midst of your suffering and say to you, if you just think a little bit more positive, if you believe just a little bit more, if you have a little more faith, and if you get right with God a little bit more, then everything will change. And Job's like, no, I don't think so. God won't forgive me even if I had more faith and if I tried to be more pure. In other words, in verses 25 through 31, Job says this, If I cheer up, it's not going to change anything. And if I clean up, God still won't forgive me. 
And sometimes that's, that's kind of our advice for people in despair and depression, right? If you just cheer up, just think positive, it'll get better. But Job knows that in his case, it's, it's not. It's not going to get better. Now, we're going to jump ahead to chapter 10. And number four says this, God, if you would just meet my demands, I might actually survive. We'll come back to the end of chapter 9 here in a moment. God, if you would just meet my demands, I might actually survive. In Job chapter 10, Job quits talking to Bildad and he looks right up at God and he says, God, I know you're bigger than me. I know I can't really take you to court and I know you're not going to listen to me, but I'm going to complain anyway. And off he goes. And here's what he says. Stop being against me, demand number one. Start really loving me because I don't think you really love me. Stop being unfair and unreasonable with me. Start giving me some answers. And if you would not do any of that, just give me a little relief and cut me some slack and let me have a little peace before I die because I'm about ready to die. Well, he lays out his demands. If you just meet my demands, I might actually survive and have a little peace. Now, you know what Job really needs? What Job really needs is a mediator. And that's the fifth point I want to make. If God, if we could just have a mediator, everything would work out. Job says that at the end of chapter 9. He says, if we could just have a mediator, because here's the thing. Job says this, it's impossible impossible for me to take God Almighty to court and win unless there's a mediator that stands between us. Job gets it. The problem is Jesus hasn't been revealed yet. And you know what the good news is this morning? You and I know that Jesus. You and I have that Jesus. When we're in the position that Job was in, we have someone that will step in. Because look at Job 32 through 35. Look at what he says. Job 9, 32 through 35. Here's Job's frustration. For God is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. God's up here. I'm down here. I need someone to bring us together. I can't reach to him. He doesn't apparently want to come down to me. I need someone to go and bring us together so we can talk face to face. Then look at verse 33, there is no umpire or mediator or arbitrator between us who may lay his hand upon both of us. What a beautiful picture. In mediation, here's what would happen. A mediator in those days would come, and let's say that Joe and Robert are at it, and and they have a conflict. The mediator would come and place his hand on Joe's head and his hand on Robert's head, and and saying, you two are accountable to me, and I'm going to make you work this out. And Job is saying, I need someone who's got an arm high enough to reach God and one low enough to reach me on the ash heap of despair and make us work this out together. And then look at verses 34 and 35. Let him remove his rod from me. If someone would just call a truce, God, you're beating me. It's not Bildad that's beating me. It's you that's beating me. If you'd stop beating me for a moment and I could stop fearing you for a moment... Maybe we could talk about this. Then I would speak and not fear him. But I am not like that in myself. I can't do this. I can't do this. I need a mediator. Well, let me tell you, we're coming up on Easter and we've got good news. Job is crying out, 
for Jesus, he just doesn't know it. Isn't that beautiful? He's crying out for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus brings people together in the incarnation to resolve their differences. Isn't that beautiful? We couldn't go up to this almighty God and plead our case and beg for mercy. And so God himself came down in the person of Jesus Christ and said, I will come down and bring you and God together. Isn't that beautiful? And we know that he's that mediator because he's fully God and he's fully man. And so he can connect with us and he can connect with God and he's sinless in the process. And Jesus is that one true mediator between God and people to resolve their conflict. Jesus reaches out one hand and puts it on God and he reaches the other hand out and he puts it on us and he's there on the cross bringing reconciliation and mediation between God and man. That's what you see. That's what you see. And Jesus has made peace possible on the cross by being the perfect sacrifice for our sin and absorbing the full wrath of God so that we can sort this mess out together. You see, God's wrath has been stayed for sinners because Jesus absorbed it on the cross. Listen, and our sins can be forgiven when we go to Jesus on the cross and admit, look, I am a sinner, but I want to be blameless and I want to receive from you the righteousness of God. This is what he wants. This is what he's longing for. And here's the good news. This is who God is. Now, the beauty of it, Jesus had not yet come. And at the end of the story, God's going to come down and speak to Job. But the reality is this. Job had to trust God for a future mediator. And that future mediator has come. And now we look back to the cross. We look back to the resurrection. And we know that there is one. And we, in our suffering, can plead to God and know He hears us. Because what did we hear last week in Romans 8? There's an intercessor. Jesus and the Spirit intercede. So, what are some lessons can we apply when God's sovereignty over our adversity seems unjust? When God's sovereignty over our adversity seems unjust, here's what you want to remember. Number one, when misery breaks our spirit, we need mercy, not brutality. We need kindness, not bluntness. Listen, when people are suffering, we're going to hear upstairs about Romans 8.28. When people are in the midst of suffering, you don't give them that verse immediately. You don't beat them with, hey, let me bless you, the little sovereignty of God, and beat you with Romans 8.28. They don't need bluntness. They need kindness. They don't need brutality. They need mercy. But look at the second point. When misfortune ruins our lives, we need God-centered trust, not self-centered demands. Job went down the wrong path when he started demanding God meet his needs on his timetable. And his friends didn't help him by pointing him in that direction. Listen, when you think God's sovereignty over your adversity is unjust, remember, trust his, his, His grace when you can't see His face and trust His plan when you can't see His hand. You've got to have God-centered trust, not self-centered demands. But the biggest truth is that last one. When mystery about suffering fills our souls, we need the revelation 
of the incarnate mediator, not the traditions of men. Listen, you don't need to hear, you don't need more self-help books, and you don't need what men think you ought to do. You need to look to the cross of Jesus Christ, because there you have God suffering for you and a sinless man sacrificing himself for you. Isn't that beautiful? We're coming up on Easter. These are the truths. This is what Job longed for. And we get the we live on this side of the of the revelation, and this is our God. So when you're suffering, look to Jesus. Because that's really what you need is a mediator that will stand in your place. Wow, that's just I know that's a lot and it's 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 heavy duty stuff, but when you step back from it, you're like, wow, God has been very gracious to reveal himself to us even in our suffering. Let's pray. Father, we we know we're going to suffer, and we know that you're sovereign, and we don't always understand how our our suffering and your sovereignty work together. And there's times when it feels like you're very much against us and that you've abandoned us, and somehow our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. But God, we have Jesus. We have Jesus, who is your Son, whom you sent to be a mediator between us and you because you loved us and want to be reconciled with us. You desire to forgive our sin. You desire to bless our lives and you desire to help us through suffering. But Lord, we've got to to trust you. And most of all, we've got to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord. So Father, I pray that we will not take lightly this awesome revelation And we won't take lightly your mediation for us. Not only in the past when we got saved, but right now in our suffering, in our groaning, until we get to your glory. And so I pray this Easter season that we will think afresh and anew about what we have that Job longed for and waited for and died without really meeting Jesus until he went to heaven because he believed in the promise of what was coming. Lord, we believe in the promise of the one who has come and is coming again. May we trust you. May we trust you on the ash heap of our despair. In Jesus' name, amen.